Hey everyone, this is Paul Siegel, and you're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs comes to you live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, and you can catch us on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms, or youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about multi-party campaigns. Can a DM handle multiple groups in a single fantasy world, and how much is too much today on Wandering <laughs> DMs? Paul, uh, I, I, to, not to sound like a broken record, this is, this is an issue I was looking to get extra mm-hmm. ideas for, because I had some ideas for a campaign recently, um, and, uh, this, this is what became the, the, the sticking point for me is how in the world am I going to handle possibly interactions between multiple groups now? Okay. Now let me, let me just, let me going to read one little thing here. If I pull mm-hmm. up the very first volume ever of D and D when people open this book, usually the first thing that just absolutely blows their mind is the number of players. Uh, section right here, and I'll just read it if, if you don't know what that says. Number yep. of players, D- Dungeons and Dragons takes at least one referee, and from four to 50 players can be handled in any single campaign. Lovely. And so a lot of people go, 50, 50 players in a campaign. Now, admittedly, <laughs> they wouldn't be all at the table at one time. I, you know, Gygax there was thinking about having multiple groups and multiple people showing up on different days. And they'd probably be larger groups than we deal with today, like maybe up to maybe twenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, but again, the the assumption from for D and D starting on day one was that there'd be more than one group. And nowadays, it's hard for me to wrap my head around how that works. Fascinating. Fascinating. So how I guess uh, how do we know that this is the way that Gygax ran? Like, what's where's that what? coming from? I, I think we have uh, stories uh, that people have told uh, places like EN World and places mm-hmm. like uh, the ODD 74 forums that uh, when when the game was first invented, Gary was running games every single night in his basement, seven nights a week. And there was so much excitement. It was just nuclear powered and people <laughs> were cramming into his basement on, an, on a you know, uh, regular basis every night. And there'd be different people from night to night. And I believe that you'd, you'd form groups, go into the dungeon. Um, and we also have stories from Dave Arneson that he had people showing up in person. And then people that couldn't show up on person, they would be calling him on the phone yep. late yep. at night. Right. To, can, can, I, can I do something with my character, Dave, on the phone? And he was having to handle that. So we have a lot of stories that both yep. Dave and Gary were, were handling that. I, I remember hearing that latter story, I think, from uh, Dave McGarry at um, at uh, Gary Hunt when you and I were there. Uh, right, right. That, that story. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, fascinating. Very, very interesting. Um, certainly not the way most people play the game these days. Right, um, right. <coughs> but yeah, if you're a DM yeah. and you've put, you've put your heart and soul into making a rich campaign world, you kind of want to show it off more. So I feel like a lot right. of us have the instinct that we would like an opportunity to get more depth like this uh, and get more perspectives from different play groups at the same time. But it's a hard problem. I think many yeah. of us have attempted something like this and really 
crack the boat open on the shoals because this is a hard problem, honestly. Now, now, do you think this this comes ultimately from, I assume, from wargaming tradition, right? That like these these groups of people that you're playing with are mostly from wargame clubs, uh, where they're used to this 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 is basically how you add context to your wargame, right? If we're just going to sit down yeah. and play whatever the 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 French versus the Germans in a World War II game, eh? We played a game, great, that's fun. And then the the, the 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 step that often came after that was like, well, let's actually have a map which and show con- territory control. And when we pl- resolve a game, whoever won will shift where the line is. And then we have a context for many battles over the course of a war. Right. I think right. that's very true. And of course, uh, you know, D&D originally, you know, before the role-playing name was invented, called itself Medieval War Games Rules. Um, and... Uh, so that certainly the sensibility at that time, and we get that from Arneson's Blackmore campaign, is that the players are not necessarily allies. Maybe they're yep. competing. Maybe they're competing against each other in that same war game sense. And, you know, Paul, I was, um, this morning I was reviewing uh, Tony Bath's uh, famous book, uh, setting up a war games campaign that came out one year before D&D did. So it's certainly in the zeitgeist. And basically yeah. what you just said, Paul, was pretty much the preface of that book. Hmm. Okay. Tony Bath writes Great. exactly that. Is you're going to be, you play, you've played a couple of games, they're, they're, they're disconnected, and now you want something that's a little bit deeper that has ongoing connections. Mm-hmm. A lot of people make mistakes at this point, is what he says. Let's go huh. through the common mistakes. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I'd be very curious what the common mistakes are, but uh, that's maybe, maybe for another show. Um, <laughs> fascinating. Uh, I've played I've played in war games like that. I've played in war games like that. Um, usually through work, uh, where a big had a group of people who are all in the same space together already, and we're like, oh, we'd right. love to play, you know, Warhammer during lunch or whatever. And um, so let's 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 start doing that. And then we're like, well, now we want the context. So so yeah, let's 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 set something up. Uh, makes sense. I especially will say when that, you're... that yeah, I will say that Bath's initial stab at that is just that people make it too complex to begin with, too complex to handle. So his recommendation is start simple, and if that campaign goes well, then think about what elaborations you can go on the next one. How did that work for your your workplace Warhammer game? Was it simple or complicated to start with? Um, I guess I mean it was probably complicated, right? We were playing a couple one-off games, and then the idea was let's have a let's have a, a, a bigger game so eventually sort of rules were formulated a map was drawn you know okay we've got a hex map and now we can argue about who controls which hex maybe that gives you access to resources so you can alter your army throughout the course of play um the fact is uh in my experience uh, the problem is that the the personal um uh interest level or energy that that different players are putting into the game varies greatly and so you end up with like a couple players who just want to play all the time and a couple other players who are harder to pin down, right? Who are playing just a little more with a little bit more of a casual mindset, um, and that's difficult to balance. That's very difficult to balance, um, and so usually, usually it fell apart that through that through ultimately through the the scheduling, gotcha. right? If gotcha. you want if you want the game if you want the overall game to be balanced, then everybody's got to get in a certain minimum number of actual games, right? And then right. you know. Some somebody becomes the 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 linchpin for that. Oh, so and so still hasn't played any games yet. I don't know. What do we do about that? 
it feels like this is the hard problem and to me so that's a situation where you have two different scales of the game right you have the strategic map that you're talking about and then when conflicts happen between players then you have to separately schedule a special event for the tactical action of what happens when those two people Right. right now again and to my right before the show what i said is well that's only two people that's only two people that need to play a game of warhammer yeah. that should be very simple should be simpler than like having like two separate D D play groups where you need to get like eight or ten people together and I mean, yet you still can, you, can, you can span this out i played in a game of an extended campaign of mordheim which is the games workshops warhammer fantasy set setting uh, uh game that's a uh, squad based rather than huge armies you're right. controlling maybe five or six individual characters, you know, small band rather than a, a huge army. The interesting thing about that game is uh, it takes a little less space. It's slightly different. Um, you know, th- maybe the entry is a little easier because brand new players only have to paint five miniatures instead of, you know, 500. Right. Um, right, right, right. <laughs> right, right. So it's a little easier to get into. Um, and then the interesting thing is the context in that is not a big map. We're not having, we're not emulating battles in an army where we're emulating little uh, skirmishes between small bands who are roving around a destroyed city. Um, so the actual, the context is in the band itself. So there's a lot of rules for advancement, like what happens at the end of a battle? Uh, it, was this character actually killed or are they wounded? Do they need to be healed? Uh, did they gain experience points that they can spend on new skills? You know, do you want to buy, buy up new members or more equipment for your little war band, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, but there was still this this strategic level thing, and and again, like, you know, a player could get ahead just by playing a lot of games, and and right. that's usually disappointing to most players. It's like, oh, it's just you know whoever whoever plays the most wins. That sucks. Um, so, uh, but the interesting thing about that is you could also that is not necessarily always one versus one. You could have matches that were two on two or 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 like a four person free for all, et cetera. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Was it like, like so I, I, I played, I, I guess a, a friend of ours used Mordheim as a uh, setting for some D&D games we played, but I didn't play in the, the Mordheim campaign. Is, it, is, is there a, a strategic level and a tactical level? Or is it just like when you have a fight, it's all in the same place, basically? Uh, well, the fight is all in the same place, just like any Warhammer game, right? You're, you're sitting down at the table and you're playing the battle between you know, two groups or whatever, three right. groups, however many. Um, so, I, I mean, I think the strategic level was, again, just the context of how do we arrange the games? Who who plays against who, when, and why, right? Like, what's the... Right. What, right. I think it's 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 meant to be a little le- more loosey-goosey, I think, honestly. So Mordheim specifically rolls this out in their in their rule book, but I think it's more just like, oh, you just, you just challenge another player. Hey, let's go play a game. Okay, great, right? So there's... You don't have to worry about like, well, are we adjacent on the map? Are we what territory are we fighting right. over? Like, because all the all the um, persistence is in the band itself, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, oh, I want to get on the board so that my band can move around and maybe find some resources, uh, and then bring those home. And now I have those resources to spend on upgrading them. That's exactly so what that. I'm about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you do have that little bit of of strategic element of I want gotcha. stuff and I want to increase the ability of my war band, um, but the rules around actually getting onto the board were were looser. Yep, I can I can see that. That would make that make that streamline. You know, I'm looking at the at the at the, at the chat that's going on right now and it's like to me again this seems like a like a hard issue of how to handle multiple parties in one campaign. 
And I, I am really searching for anybody's advice myself. Now, our friend Julian is saying that he did, in fact, run a campaign at point, one point with 50-ish players. So if, if oh. Julian wants to, like, share any extra stuff about, like, did he have two separate, like, strategic tactical level there or, or what made that feasible, I think a lot of us would be really curious about hearing that. Um, maybe we should so have had Julian as a guest today. <laughs> 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 I feel like the style of game we're going to end up talking about here is uh, West March's campaign, which tries to emulate right. sort of what what we think of uh, what we think of uh, when Gary was writing about that kind of fifty players yeah. and, and multiple right. things. And um, so uh, let's see. I just do I still have this here. Yeah, I just posted. Um, uh, I have the I have the the original blog post uh, written by. Uh, ben Robbins about the West March's campaign. So let me just read a little bit here to for a setup for anyone who doesn't know what the hell it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's a campaign. Uh, it says um, it was designed to be pretty much the diametric opposition of the normal weekly game. One, there was no regular time. Every session was scheduled by the players on the fly. Two, there was no regular party. Each game had different players drawn from a pool of around 10 to 14 people. Three, there was no regular plot. The players decided where to go and what to do. It was a sandbox yeah. game in the sense that that's now used to describe video games like Grand Theft Auto minus the missions. There was no mysterious old man sending them on quests, no overarching plot, just an overarching environment. Um, and he says, my motivation in setting these things up this way was to overcome player apathy and mindless plot following by putting the players in charge of both the scheduling and what they did in game. Um, and then also to make it a little more ad hoc and, and more uh, uh, malleable to the complex lives of adults <laughs> yep, 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 uh, in yep. terms of scheduling and whatnot. Yep. It's an interesting concept, right? So you have, you, you imagine you set up this big sandbox, open world kind of place for players to explore. You have a big pool of players and you say, you know, well, when you guys want to go on an adventure, you know, form a party, come up with a goal and off you go. Um, I, so I ran a game like this myself, uh, again, through uh, with a group of people I was working with. So I was working right. at a company that was making, you know, uh, online fantasy many player games. So like most, <laughs> most, of the, most of the employees were interested in, uh, <laughs> in seeing the tabletop roots of this kind of stuff. So I set up a West Marches campaign where I said, okay, we've got a pool of like 20 people. Uh, we set up a, a wiki for them to, to, record their characters and to uh, record notes to each other. Right. So that was sort of this, this, and anyway, and I set up this, um, I set up a map. I basically, I, uh, uh, the, the, the short story is actually just totally ripped off the barbarian prince map and reskinned it. Um, and I had a plot around, um, uh, healing berries. So, there was uh, the plot basically revolved around is again in the in the article he says there's no plot and that's kind of true um, but I had a, a I guess a, a recurring theme that uh, you were in a boom town right you're in this little this little town out in the wilderness and the interesting thing is discovered nearby there are these bushes that are growing these magic berries that are essentially just like good berries uh, so they they heal they actually heal they have magical properties and they're discovering that they can use these berries to like brew healing potions this is actually how healing potions are made and this is why you have, you find them on the equipment list of the fifth edition player's handbook according to me in this campaign because blah 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 and uh, and that was sort of like 
you know, so so the baseline thing they could do is like, well, we're going to go out and see if we can find like, so all the all the berry bushes near the town are obviously picked clean at this point. So we're going to go explore further afield and see what we can find out about these berry bushes and where they grow. And maybe we can find a big, big lot of them. And uh, I amusingly had, uh, so here's the, the anecdote I wanted to share, Dan, that I, that I was holding off from sharing uh, <laughs> pre-show. One of the records I kept for this game was called the Berry Index. And basically each at the at the start of each game, I I rolled randomly to see whether the berries had gotten a little more or a little expensive from the last time we played. And so the players nice. always could go into the town and they could look at what are berries going for right now. <laughs> and <laughs> fluctuated. And and then I would influence this based on what the players like if the players brought back a big load of berries, then okay, then the, the berries are gonna berry berry index is gonna go down. Great. Um, Great. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a, a funny little bit of business, and I have this 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 uh, very careful time record of each week, each game week, and how uh, how that affected the berry price. That's neat. That's super neat. How long how long did that that West Marches style campaign last? What? Uh... Um. Actually, so, okay. So I'm looking at the berry index right now, and I can say that the uh, first the first entry in the berry index. Is June twelfth, and the last one is October fifteenth. So, okay. so a couple months, okay. a couple months, couple months. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, three or four months. I ran this for. Um, again, I think it fell into the same pattern. Had a couple players yeah. who were really keen to play. Interestingly, in this case, and it, it's almost ridiculous that this kind of nonsense actually played to my benefit. But I had two players who really liked to play who didn't like each other. Um, <laughs> right, right. This is but, new. Yeah. Wait, I've heard about this campaign, but this is actually a new piece of news to me. So there you go. So, so classic, you know, classic D and D logistics problem. I have two players that, that kind of don't like each other very much. How do I deal with that? Well, so the answer is that they that they pulled other people from the group into there. So we basically kind of had two regular parties that were going out, right? Or at least it was always you know, person A's party and person B's party and who else was in the group changed, but those were, they were kind of like the, the tentpole yeah. party members who yeah. were pushing to play and, and, and then dragging along. And so I almost, it almost became this point where like, and they were kind of avoiding each other. So they were kind of like pushing the, the map, they were exploring the map in different directions and they were like each kind of going down their own road to the point where I'm like, I kind of, kind of feel like I'm running two parallel campaigns right. that, don't really have that much okay. to do with each other other than the fact okay. that they're both linked to the same hometown. Okay. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Cool. Um, now somewhat similarly, uh, the, the last comment, uh, the second to last comment from Julian is that one thing that really helped him is that he scheduled, uh, in advance two meetings a week and he's saying Tuesday and Thursday, and he's saying yeah. he could welcome any number of players at those sessions. And honestly, that actually answers a question for me about like, Okay, this is great having this free form scheduling available to players, but I mean, you need the DM. So I assume, like, I assume, Paul, you blocked out like times that you were available for 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 people to schedule sessions for that. I did, but I tried to make them as flexible as possible, and it wasn't okay. like a, I'm always going to run a game every Thursday. It wasn't that. It okay. did not become that. It was. It was all right. These are generally the times in the future that I'm available if anybody wants to. Create. It became like a sort of like an office hours kind of thing, right? Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. I'm available yep. for a game if you want to schedule one. Um, you know, uh, again, Ben Robbins posts about this in his blog post. He talks about the scheduling. Um, 
Um, and uh, and yeah, he said he said like the GM has to be like hyper available, right? GM has to be super available yeah. for, for in order for this yeah. to work, right? And then right. and then it also the interesting thing is you know plot wise uh, about Westmarch is that it pushes responsibility on the players for like well what are we going to do right? You know, it's not just oh we want to play on Tuesday. It's well I want to play right. on Tuesday so that we can go check out that goblin hideout that uh, that we right. saw when we were out picking berries last week, right? And then the the DM has a little more focus of what to go in zoom in on. I like that a lot. I mean, I like that a lot. Now, of course, the the, the DM has to have a, a, enough campaign area prepared that there's interesting things to follow up on. Obviously, yep. Um, yep. But I like coming into the game and knowing that the players are pre invested in what's about to happen that way. So it it's seems nice. like that would. This, this is getting a bit more into like what is sandbox style play, right? Because this is right. I, w- I would do this in my normal campaign. This is how I would run my normal campaign, which is a regular group or a meeting every okay. every once a week, blah blah blah. Um, but that is that is nice uh, in terms of like handling multiple groups, right? That's interesting, right? Like I think I think the big issue we end up talking about, uh, which which I'm surprised you haven't brought up yet, Dan, is is the time keys right? on my mind right this second. Yeah. I was like, I got to yeah. bring that up really soon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, okay, okay. Let's get it up here. Let's get it up here. Let's okay. uh, let's, let's so read it off. This is. I know this is one of your favorite quotes, Paul, which is why I wanted it in the show today. Um, and um, you know, a lot of people. So here we're looking at the first edition DM's guide written by Gary Gygax, and there's this whole major section just on time, just on time in the campaign, and it goes for like two pages. And one of some of our favorite uh, one of our favorite quotes here is this bit in all caps in the second paragraph on screen that says, "You cannot have a meaningful meaningful campaign if strict time records are not kept." And um, again, that's a thing that uh, that some you know some some of us the first time that we lay eyes on this go, "This doesn't seem to have any meaning whatsoever." <laughs> what are you talking about? Are you talking about like setting up the calendar? But the truth is. Those the two pages that then proceed are entirely talking about handling multiple parties is what mm-hmm. that is, mm-hmm. and if and particularly if you have one uh, party that's operating in a dungeon on a hour to hour basis, and you have another party that's operating in the wilderness on a week to week basis, and time is literally flowing at different rates for the two groups, how the hell do you handle that? Plus, like spell research and magic item creation, all that kind of stuff. And I find that one of the one of the interesting things that 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 Gary winds up saying there is what I think of as his no retcon rule. Is he comes up with a situation? I don't know if he ever actually ran into this. Whereby, what happens if you know uh, November first, uh, play group A goes in the dungeon, kills a kills a dragon, takes away a huge treasure. Okay, and then November, real world November 8th, party B goes in that dungeon, but in game time, they're operating sooner. Mm. So maybe maybe party A went on a big wilderness trek, and in game time, they're later, but play group B is operating real time later, but in game earlier. And his solution to that is, is uh, don't retcon what happened for play group A just for play group B, uh, announce that the cave is empty, and apparently the dragon has picked up the treasure and is traveling that week, and is just not there. Mm-hmm. Which, which, which is which is a tough problem, right? It seems like yeah. a that seems sort of ridiculous, and b um, 
it almost seems like shouldn't I be rewarding the the play group that's using less in-game time? But that was that was his solution is even if one group is real time early, in-game late, whatever they do sticks and you just have mm-hmm. to you just have to fly with that. But that's what that whole section is about. So the the the, the accurate time records is just purely how to deal with the multiple party yeah. issue and yeah. nothing else. There's there's a there's a kind of um Secondary problem that that is very similar to this, uh, though I think we we did a show about once, Dan, which is like, what do you do when a player is is not present, right? A player is yes. sick or right. whatever and is not at the table. What do you what do you do with their character? Um, and I've seen that handled a dozen different ways. Um, the reason I bring that up is is West marches pokes at both of these problems, right? Because not only yeah, time flow may be different for different groups, but also um, you know. What if what if the playgroup is just fluctuating every every session, right? Westmarch has really right. tweaks this because it's like there's no there's not even a standard party. There's not even just one party. There's whoever's here that night, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty crazy. Um, so there's a couple of things that I did, and I can't remember how much of this is is Westmarch is kind of by the book, and how much of this is my own interpretation. Uh, but there were some things such as a hard rule of like you have to return to town at the end of the session, like that's it. No, no. At, at the end mm-hmm. of any given session, it is assumed the party returns to town. And, you know, if we just run out of real physical time, then I will just hand wave how you got back there. And I'll just, <laughs> yep, blah, blah, blah happens, such and such, you're home. Um, and that, that prevents the weird, like, whoa, last week Bob was here. And now Charlie is here. That's weird. <laughs> um, and then also, then, uh, as a, as a, sort of extension of that is that I assumed that re- that game time always progresses forward. So in between any two sessions, some amount of game time has passed. And, then, and this is like, I would just advance the clock more than just what the players did, right? Maybe the players mm-hmm. spend a month of game time in a session. Great. I might say the next session starts two months in the future from there. Yeah. Yep. 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 But generally the clock is always going forward. And so I never had to deal with, Oh, this group actually technically arrives before that group. It just wasn't physically possible because there was a connection between real time and game time. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And and some and I I like I'm very comfortable with that rule. I'm very comfortable with you've got to get back to town, partly so that I can hand wave the time issue. Frankly, Mm. Uh, it it solves at least two problems. It solves the the timing problem, and it also solves the who shows up next session problem. So I do that in my campaign. I see Julian saying that he does that in his campaign. Um, uh, and I, I'm very, very comfortable with that. Um, and I feel, I, I feel like that does, in fact, solve a lot of issues. And the other thing that we have that, that you and I are both comfortable with, with is hand-waving large amounts of time. So if mm. we go a month has passed or two months have passed and, and we have, like in my campaign, I still have very slow healing rates naturally. You don't. You don't heal all your hit points overnight. It could take a month or two or something like that mm-hmm. um, if you're just resting, which is A, realistic, and B, actually allows more stuff to happen in the campaign. So I feel like, um, you know, slightly modern play whereby you've leveled up a couple times in, in-game in a couple days doesn't quite feel right. And I actually like being able to say that the campaign has uh, has experienced months or years of time of flow. Uh, and I feel like that's, that, that gives a lot better yeah. texture, at least to the play that I'm familiar with. 
there's there's I think a problem comes into play here, especially when you have very large dungeons. Like, what if you're running a a mega dungeon, right? I I think inevitably you will have a session where the players like feel like they're gaining traction on a thing, and just the real world clock runs out, and they really don't want to return to town. They're like, no, we want to press our advantage. We're doing great. We we really want to just pick up next session right where we left off, right? Because you know we don't want to lose all this ground. Um, and, 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 and I think that makes sense to me because especially with large scale dungeons, you start to wonder, are they ever going to make it to the far away parts of the dungeon? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, for, I mean, I feel like, um, and of course for me, I'm like, you don't have a choice about it. You're, you've got to, you got to go back to town. Um, and if you want to do better, play faster, play faster next time. But uh, for me, I actually I feel like I actually tend to repopulate my mega dungeon slower than some other people. So once mm-hmm. a thing is cleared out, it tends to stay empty for a fair, for a longer amount of time than than what some other people do. And personally, okay. what I do is I just give one uh, one wandering check per level that you go down. So assuming that you've previously mapped and cleared out and know how to get there, on the way down to level five, I go, I just roll one, two, three, four checks. That's it. Uh, to see if something has shown up on the prior levels and you can get back down pretty quickly uh, yeah. was has been my solution to that. Um, hmm. How crazy. Now, one thing, so so some of it, so uh, John Miller in, in the chat is reminding us that some people use a dedicated uh, return to town table. Um, and I know that our friend BJ used to do that. So if, if the time in the real session times out um, and they didn't, play through getting back to town, you roll on the how, what happened on the way back to town table. Um, Now, I don't actually use that myself. Have you used that, Paul? I did briefly and uh, quickly discarded it, Uh, especially because I think probably I was using Jeff Reince's actual tables, which I Mm want to think Mm -hmm. include some pretty horrible, horrible things, including player Mm -hmm. death, right? Your character can die on that table. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had a player rage quit over that. They were just like, what? I okay. spent all this time okay. and we played and, and okay. I, I kept warning them, like, you're running out of time. Like, the session's going to end and you're going to okay. be forced to go back. So you're going to... They always knew that the table existed, but until the reality... Like, even at the moment, there was that kind of gambler, like, oh, it's going to be fine. I'm going to make it. Roll. What? I fucking died? Right. Table flip. I'm out. I'm out. Right, right, I can't right. believe I spent all this energy on this character and then, you know, died on a dice roll trying to make it back home. Oh, that was, hurts. That's too not bad. happy. He was really not happy. That's uh, too bad. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That hurts. So that's that answers John's question of like, at least at least some players were very not happy with that table. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. That's tough. That's tough. <clears throat> um, now, admittedly, okay. So so the reason why I wanted to talk about this was, and it is a little bit different from the West Marches. Uh, aspect is what happens. The, the 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 tough nugget for me is what happens if you have multiple separate parties, and they they want to um, interact or come in conflict or or have a fight, right? Um, which is which again is why we started off with the war gaming idea of like you have two players and they need to schedule a warhammer game or something like that. So. Mm-hmm. What so so one uh, cla- one category of solution is to as you and I were talking about a couple days back is to literally have two games running live at the same time. So I might call this the synchronous method, 
maybe you're a convention uh, and maybe you get like uh, maybe two DMs and you're actually running two sessions live in two separate rooms. Um, have you have you seen that happen before, Paul? Yep. And, then, and how does the interaction <laughs> then occur? I mean, uh, of course I've seen that before because you and I played in such a game. <laughs> Uh, I've seen it a couple right. of times, and I've tried to design a game like this. Uh, right. uh, I'll tell you the classic one. I, I played a game at, at, uh, at a convention where it was, I can't even, I'm not even going to remember the systems properly. There were two different 40K, uh, Warhammer 40K, so that's the sci-fi version of Warhammer uh, role-playing games. Um, they, they focus on different things. I can't remember exactly. I don't, I'm not super familiar with all the different role-playing games set in that setting, but there was definitely two games that were set. They were basically using different systems, right? So they're using oh, different, oh, wow. yeah, different systems, right? Really? One focuses on like uh, space Marines, I think. And one focused on more just sort of like ordinary people. I can't remember. Anyway, point being turns out both groups were actually uh, uh, infiltrated or exploring the same area, the same building. Right. And, um, and they're dimly aware that there's another group doing something like this. Something's happening in this building and like a, you know, a space Marine strike force was sent here and this group of investigators was sent there and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think at some point, either we had the whole game or somebody was handed a walkie talkie so you could actually communicate with the other group. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so how did, yeah, it sounds super exciting. How did it actually play? Not well at all. Uh, okay. Basically, okay. the walkie-talkie was just a distraction. Uh, time was so out of sync between the two groups; it was laughable. Yeah, right. right? And, and 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 so it just it was just a distraction. It was just an extra thing yeah. that was like, well, this is annoying. I, I can't focus on it. I don't know what's going on over there. Whatever. There's another group, I guess. Whatever. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. Even even if you have two games running simultaneously, they're still going to have the in-game time running at different rates, and you're still going to be yep. out of sync. Yeah, and, just, and, just through like the flow of like exploration yeah. versus combat, right? Like there's, there's right. a time dilation exactly. that is wonderful. Frankly, it's a great perk mm -hmm. of these kinds of games that you can dilate game time. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, you're trying to keep two games in sync; it becomes a nightmare. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, so we've we've seen so so that I, I love the um, walkie-talkie attempt. I guess I'll say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that inspired the the the. The, the bringing into the telephone in one of your yeah. games at one point, right? Yeah, I have a horror um, game that's set in 1980s Berlin. And the original concept around this game actually was uh, uh, our, our friend, friend of the show, Adam, uh, was uh, uh, he and I were going up to Carnage. Possibly he and I played in or were talking about the very Warhammer 40k game I was just discussing and came up with this it. idea of a horror game set in 1980s Berlin where you would have an East Berlin group and a West Berlin group. And then that they were linked by uh, a telephone. And so we would actually have a physical telephone on the table that they could use to call each other, um, which was amusing. And I have all the technology to make that happen. But again, the problem of like just writing the content and trying to figure right. out how to link them in, an, in a dramatically ex exciting way, because that's what you want, right? Right. You want totally. like, it to be important that they can talk to each other. You want them to be able to do things that affect the game in some interesting way as a result. Of course. of course. And we just, yeah, we just couldn't make it come together. Eventually that, what that devolved to was a game. It's just a single game with just me that has the, the phone as a prop on the table that the players still have to interact with, but they interact with to me as the DM and not, not another play group. 
Right, right. And now the other the other case. So um, so I kind of I you know, and these things are all experimental. So I mean, the first time you run them, it's you're going to find out whether it works or not. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the other thing that you mentioned, Paul, was this was uh, two years ago at TotalCon. So TotalCon 2019, we ran we played again with our friend Adam in a game uh, that was being run by uh, Jay Parker, um, who's a guy that um, uh, runs a lot of uh, Marvel superheroes games. And he has his own system you can find on DriveThruRPG called the G-Core system, which is kind of a a simplified version of the 80s space rip uh, Marvel system. And Mm -hmm. so you and I and Adam got in a Marvel superheroes game that Jay was running that had about 10 people at the table. And uh, this was in a room with about five different tables. And about two hours into it, it turned out that the Transformers game on the table next door, right, mm-hmm. ne- ne- right next to our table was being run, run by a friend of Jay's and was actually the same, was actually the same world happening. And so about two hours in, they actually connected the two tables and we had a giant 20-player 2DM mashup with Marvel superheroes and Transformers fighting, you know, mm-hmm. a giant, a, a giant hideous monster, which is funny because as I think about it, technically, you know, Marvel Comics did publish Transformers at one point and did actually have Spider-Man show up in one. So actually, that is sort of canon, fanboys. Yep, yep. <laughs> I, but so that was that, that was that was just, what was that. What did you think of that effect in that game? What, what was your takeaway from that from playing that? You know, I thought it was cool. Now there were other there were some other issues with the game that um, uh, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. You know, I've had 14 players at once, but having 20 players at once is a challenge for for any DM. Um, yeah. And the, the the game was also kind of frankly low stakes. Uh, we like everything that we ever fought we very, very, very easily defeated. So um, if it had been me, I would have tweaked the challenge level a bit. That's mm. kind of the thing that sticks in my head. Also, the fact that you and Adam are just wonderful role players. Like, I, <laughs> I have never seen a better uh, Mr. Fantastic and Ben Grimm played than, uh, than oh, by Paul and Adam. So I will, that actually is probably the number one thing that sticks in my head, is me just being a gog at what a great Mr. Fantastic you played, Paul. <laughs> that's funny that's funny i didn't i didn't think i was doing anything that special so thank you thank you i guess uh of course adam and i have been playing together since college so yeah, we, we, we know how to play off each other pretty well <laughs> and i will say in that case when when the tables uh came together we were allied we still it still yeah. wasn't player on player fighting so we were allied against the big bad is that a thing you want um, you want that then because i th- frankly this this remind this is reminiscent to me of yeah. like a classic problem in D anD D of what to do when there right. is player strife at the table, and I've seen right. this just at a normal weekly D anD D game where just somebody's right. like, uh, "I'm playing a thief and I want to steal something from this other player," right? Like, right. Those conflicts come up, and then and there's some number of players who just hate that. Like, they're just like, "I don't want yeah. that at the table at all. Why do I want yeah. that kind of drama at my table?" Okay, so the the truth is okay, totally understood. And and a couple of people in chat, I think Ash was the first person to say that in these kinds of these kinds of settings, a lot of people just come up with a no PvP rule and just yep. take the issue right off the table. Um, I feel I, I, within a party, I I would be really aggravated by that as well. Um, 
then you're de you're dealing with like your meta gaming and do I know that they did it and do I not know that I did it? I feel like I'm a little bit more open to it when it's actually an opposing party. So mm -hmm. I feel like if it's uh, if it's not someone that you're actually playing with directly, um, you know, I'll play a I'll play a board game and I know that I'm going in in opposition to the other people. And so I think that if that's if that's already informed and consented in advance when you schedule the session that I feel that player VP player on with two opposing parties, I would be, mm. I would be fairly open to that. Now mm. I'm not opposed to, you know, here I am thinking about, you know, Jay's Marvel superheroes game and there it's a lot less, less likely you're going to die outright. It's pretty mm -hmm. likely you're going to get knocked down or unconscious and not actually lose your PC. I'm thinking about a convention game. That's a one-off. So the, the stakes there are a lot lower um, mm -hmm. uh, than an ongoing grinding old school D and D game where it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to level up your character. Then I understand just like your player with the return to town table. I can, I can understand that, that pain point a little better actually. Right. But right. I, should, I feel like I want to be open to it. Yeah. I mean, I get, I, I feel like I don't mind a sort of like rivalry aspect. Like I don't mind yeah, when the players right? are like, oh, I really wanted that thing and so-and-so got it or, you know, uh, just little little touches like that where it's clear like, oh, the other party got here first and they did, you know, mm -hmm. they did this thing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't mind that terribly. Um, I'm not sure I would want to deal with like, um, you know, there's a there's a MacGuffin and we need it. The other party has it. Uh, I sneak into their in their inn in the middle of the night and steal it. Agreed. Yeah. Um, because it, that's just going to escalate. Like it, that. Like that. In what I just described, yeah. probably sounds fine, but it's going to escalate, and eventually, yeah. it's all right. Rumble yeah. in the streets time, and then we're just going to have a, a yeah. PvP fight. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So, admittedly, I mean, I, I am thinking about like what would you know? How would one handle the the PvP, which is the which is the hard the hard point? So. Obviously, there's the as we discussed at the start. There's the the war game. Like we'll we'll make a special event. We'll make a special event and schedule it and come together and have have the fight. Um, a little bit like you did in your D and D campaign uh, when your city got assaulted and I came in to run the bad guys. Yep. So yep. I wasn't I wasn't previously engaged in the campaign before that, but we had a special event for this non DM player v player action, and that was that was. An interesting yep. event. Um, uh, now, the other thing that I, that, you know, looking through Tony Bath's book this morning, and this is totally how it worked in the old days for play by mail games or play by email games, is to have the uh, fight rules working on a completely abstracted basis that the players don't actually interact when they have a PvP fight. So. Looking at Tony Bath's uh, book, he he refers to the judge as the umpire there, and he says the umpire fought the battles. So <clears throat> the players are operating at the strategic level, and they're moving armies around in his war game. And then when the armies finally come in conflict, that's entirely out of the player's hands. And the DM, the umpire there, entirely runs the battles on his own and then just informs the players later on of what happened. And I have I have uh, participated in a game that worked like that. I was in a Marvel superheroes game in, in high school that had, I think, about 20 players total in the campaign. 
And that's exactly what happened. And I said, I was doing something with my character and I just got a letter back the next day saying, you put up a good fight, but you lost. Uh, now you're imprisoned or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, that has problems because particularly if you're, game, if you're running a game system like D&D that has you know, combat rules and you've built a character and you have feats and spells for particular things, it feels yeah. like it's taking a major element off the table um, you know, maybe the, maybe the player is then aggrieved that they didn't, that the DM didn't pick like tactically what they would have picked. Um, and the, and then if you, then if you have to come up with a whole separate system, does the system actually produce the same results as if you had the original fine grain system? And that's a problem with, you know, people who try to use chain mail for mass combat. And then like the thing that bothers me is, okay, if I play it in normal D and can fight five guys. But if I play it in this other system, suddenly I'm fighting 100 guys with equal proficiency, and that just doesn't seem right for the campaign at all. Hmm. So you have you have that kind of problem, but a lot of campaigns have done that. You have a separate abstracted system that just entirely off, off, uh, off screen determines the results of those fights. Hmm. Hmm. Um, you know, I feel like you and I have talked about... Um, uh, I, I know we have a, an episode where we talked about two DMs, right? Playing a game with two DMs. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we've talked about a, a situation before, which is yes. a little less than two DMs, possibly, uh, where you maybe you set up a sandbox campaign you're going to run with your players, but then you also have a remote person who is role-playing the villain, right? So you have like yeah. a... Right? Imagine me as DM running a campaign where I'm just adjudicating the rules and I have the whole sandbox set up and blah, blah, blah. But I've established that there's this major NPC villain that's being roleplayed by Dan, but not at the table. Right, Just the, the, the players mm -hmm. do their thing, they go on their adventure, and then separately I contact Dan and I'm going to go, okay, this is what the players did, blah, blah, blah. What, what does your evil villain want to do? Nice. Uh, I think that would be a lot of fun, honestly. I think that would be an interesting way to, to play the game. I think it would be difficult. I'm sure that you would throw horrible monkey wrenches that would be like, <laughs> how do I, how do I make content for the players that's fun that still also you know follows you know, <laughs> what, what you what chaos Dan has introduced. But, uh, this is sort of right, it's sort of similar, right? Where like the 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 actual mechanics are being abstracted. If you if you assume that I'm playing a game with Dan as my one player, right? There is a game being played here where. Dan, the supervillain, yeah. is a player. Um, you know, there's the, then you're dealing with that abstraction. You're playing purely on the strategic level, right? You have no, yeah, I don't right. know yes. what, what, right. what happens with the fights or right. whatnot. I sent my orcs out to uh, go invade this village, and this is what happened. Mm. Yeah, that's a so. good. You know, maybe that's a, maybe that's a good halfway point. Maybe you have maybe you have one. Maybe that's a good halfway point to at least get started. Again, following Bath's principle of don't make it too complicated to begin with. Have one like normal D&D &D party that's playing everything in detail and then have another person or party that goes in knowing that they're playing a, a more abstract game um, yeah. and see how that interacts. I, I, I mean, I actually have used my partner, Isabel, for exactly what you're talking about, Paul. I guess no one's ever known this to date. But um, <laughs> in the, uh, um, in the uh, uh, outdoor spoliation uh, games, uh, I actually would turn to Isabel and say, okay, now you are controlling this foreign uh, power uh, this year. 
uh, tell me what your foreign power wants to do against the players. <laughs> so I guess I'm revealing something I never told anybody before, but, wow. but some of the stuff that was happening behind the scenes was actually amazing machinations by <laughs> Isabel. And I was sitting here with a notepad going, oh, that's great. That's terrible. I would have never thought of that. That's amazing. <laughs> so I think it gave some nice it gave some nice texture to that game too. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Inevitably, though, the players are going to want to either interact with or fight that character. Right? Yeah, you're going to have to yeah. have. But what, right. what you kind of want, right? Like I want to do that. I want right. to set that up. And be like, great, we're going to have a special mm -hmm. game. Dan's mm -hmm. coming mm -hmm. up. He's he's ready to play. <laughs> Here we mm -hmm. go. Yeah, yeah, that would be yeah. interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Have we answered the question for you at all, Dan? I'm kind of curious. Like, what what is the game you're setting up here? What's uh, what's going on? That I'm not. That I'm going to keep under wraps. <laughs> that I'm going to keep under wraps for now. Okay. But okay. Uh, but you know, I you know, I, I I read the old scrolls, and I'm like, boy, it would be really fascinating to see what happens in a in a giant campaign like that with multiple. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying I want the players to, yeah. to fight each other, but I mean, and I'll say this. Uh, so, so a long time ago in the chat, Ash, uh, Ash Adler said that one of his favorite uh, campaigns uh, had two groups and, and they didn't know that they were two separate groups in the same campaign. They didn't know for an extent of time. And I feel like, uh, like that's exactly what I was thinking about a week ago uh, of wouldn't it be interesting to have two groups that actually don't know that there's two separate player groups possibly possibly in competition with each other. So mm -hmm. that's that's the kind of thing I would like to have happen. And then, uh, yeah, and then what happens, again, what happens when they want to either ally or come into conflict? I mean, I'm, I'm cool with either one. There's a there's a slight variation on this. I think that's, that's a very small step towards this if you wanted to experiment with, which I did accidentally. Uh, back in 2010, when I first got into old school d and I, I, I remember thinking there are all these DMs out there who have these long running campaigns, right? That they've been running for, you know, years yep. or decades. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I never had that experience, right? Uh, my campaigns were always very, very short. And then, then we nixed it in one place and the other. So I, so I thought, I want to do this. I want to build, I want to build a world and I want the world to grow organically through play. So I'm going to leave a lot of it super vague and just write this little piece of the sandbox and then let the players impact the world and the world impact the players and expand out and expand out. So I did that for a while. And the interesting thing was that the play group did not remain consistent. Eventually, whatever happens, the 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 player some players couldn't play. We had to switch what day we're playing, or like major upset where like the game didn't just didn't run for a couple of months. And then I, I started up a new game, but it was really just the same same world and same rules, just with a new group of players. And so I kind of got that experience where like the world is persistent. In my head, the world is persistent. And the players of one play group that happened later were seeing the impact of the earlier play group, right? The town has been modified oh, okay, by this okay. other group of players who have been to this town before. So the world had this very rich context to it. Um, and so I was essentially dealing with multiple play groups in the same persistent world, just that they were completely non-parallel, right? They were like one group played all the way to the end and then they stopped playing and then a new group started playing. And they were completely, completely desperate like that. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, I even think I even had a case. I don't remember how much I pushed on this. I had a case where a player um, left, was unable to play anymore, left the group. Uh, his character uh, had been involved with some vampires. And so eventually I turned his character into a vampire and was using his character as an NPC. 
And later he came back to play as a new character and had to deal with the fact that there was this vampire out there that was technically his old character. Right. <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is just delightful. That was my favorite part of that. Right. Honestly, my favorite part of that was that kind of stuff. Like, I had one group who who wanted a map to uh, of a certain dungeon, and I and I had a sage who said, like, oh, yeah, absolutely, I have a map for that, and, like, bartered them way up on the price, and then handed them the maps played by the previous player group. I was like, good luck! <laughs> and uh, <laughs> player maps are not great, as it turns out. Player maps are usually not great. And there was a lot of groaning over, like, what is this? <laughs> like, oh, that's what they made. That's what the other adventuring party made. Sorry. Good luck with that. <laughs> I think we were uh, we were laughing about that a couple of weeks ago in uh, how to make yeah. your how to make your game scary for October yeah. <laughs> episode. Right? Where one of the most scary things is uh, uh, getting a getting a different perspective on what used to be your your own character, and yeah. also yeah. being forced to rely on on a horrible player made map. I guess maybe that's <laughs> one of the most scary things of all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty funny, but my players got used to this, and I would, and they would, they would. It was funny because I would, they would do things like if a player was like, "I want to write a note or a letter to this NPC," I would say, "You have to write it. You actually have to write it out and hand it to me." Great, great. <laughs> because I'm going to put that in the Super. folder, and that's going to come back at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so. so that's super that's fun. Awesome. I would recommend play play with that if you can. Play with that notion of like. You know, maybe maybe you don't have a regular play group and you're just running a series of one shots, but like put them in a persistent location and let them. Let, you know, it's a nice way to like sort of experiment with this just a little bit. Nice, nice, yeah, yeah super, cool, cool. All right, well, I I still will be uh, will be juggling this. So if uh, people want to continue the the chat and the YouTube comments later on with uh, whether they think it's best to uh, keep uh, PvP, take it off the table. Uh, schedule a special event for it, abstract it uh, <clears throat> for the uh, referee off off the table, yeah, uh, or yeah. some other some other thing that hasn't occurred to us. I would be interested in hearing that. Great, Dan. Do you have any any personal final thoughts on the topic? <clears throat> I want. <clears throat> I, pardon me. I want to see this. <clears throat> I mm -hmm. don't know. I still don't know how I would do. I feel. I feel like right at the moment I might be forced to uh, do the abstracted uh, fight bit if I had, um, you know, because it was already so hard. So much of this comes from our war game experience, right? And you know, our our reading of like these big complicated you know campaigns that are going for years. Uh, right as we said at the beginning, and you know, John reminded us again recently here. Um, uh, you know, so much of this comes out of the the war game experience that sort of accidentally spawned role-playing for Dave Arneson um, and David Wesley and people like that. And as John Peterson said, we have been failing to war game for a long time now. Yeah. But I think yeah. right at the moment, I might possibly steal Tony Bass' idea and say, I'm going to abstract it away. If it's hard enough to schedule a special event for two people playing Warhammer, I, I, I probably can't even begin to, to imagine that I could get like eight people together for a special event for two D&D parties fighting. So mm, I, would, yeah, I might possibly yeah. abstract it away. Just abstract it. Yeah. 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 But then probably I might, the you know, and then I, I, but then I might have the, the event of your player having ab abstracted the how to get back to town being super upset yeah. about it. So maybe that's a big mistake. I think it depends too on like the content you're writing and how the conflict came up, right? Do, do you, um, 
you know, is it just a, a, a random thing that happened during play? If one player gets angry at what another group did and they like say, All right, I'm just going to kill that guy. I'm just going to go knock on his door and, you know, shoot him in the right. face with my magic missiles. Um, then, yeah, you got to, I think you have to abstract that because you're not going to be able to schedule that just on the fly. Whereas on the other hand, maybe if you have some ability to predict, right? And you're like, well, yeah. the arc of this campaign is there's going to be this big climax thing at the mm -hmm. end and they're all going to want to be in the same place at the same time. And maybe you can like pre-schedule that. Say like, oh, we're gonna. I'm gonna have this big gaming party. We're gonna, we're, you know, on such and such date. Um, maybe, right. maybe you can put a little effort to just sort of make it happen. But then you're kind of forcing it, right? Now you're kind of forcing it, and it's not yeah. happening organically through play. And maybe that's less yeah. exciting. I don't know. Yeah. I suppose you could schedule it, and you could have like, like a, like, like people agree to have their characters run by other players. Like maybe there's, you know, a a, a subset of the actual player group, but they're controlling other characters if they're okay with that. I suppose mm. that's a that's a modification of that idea. Interesting. Like that's a, now you're you're talking hardcore collar, right? Hard you the the parties only send the collar <laughs> lead to the event, yeah. and the collar runs all the player characters at the special combat. Uh, event. How about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think nailed it. Like I'm so glad yeah. I found the solution. <laughs> good, good luck with that, <laughs> players. If you've uh, viewers, uh, if you've if you've um, experimented with this, uh, have other experiences about uh, multiple groups in the same game world, and we'd love to hear from it. Uh, you know, leave us some comments here in the YouTube chat, and uh, let's. Uh, yeah, Dan's clearly uh, still got questions. I, I guess do. Hopefully, I do. We'll, hopefully, we'll revisit this, Dan, once you've had a chance to actually run a thing. Yeah, well, we can uh, we can yeah, do the yeah. uh, the autopsy after it blows up in my face. <laughs> and of course, if you're new to the show here, remember that you can like and follow and subscribe to us, the Wandering DMs, and we're on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and also yes, GitHub, and we do have the handle Wandering DMs on all of those sites. So look for us there for updates and upcoming shows. If you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, that is available on our website at wanderingdms.com. You can also find it through various podcast carriers such as Google Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. If you're listening to this show on one of those sites right now, please take a moment, uh, rate and review our show on that site. That helps other users of that site find us and uh, grows our audience, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And of course, huge thanks to our patrons who support the Wandering DM shows. And if you're, you'd like to join them, uh, please do visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs. Uh, you see a couple different tiers. We have discounts on March, access to our private Discord server, monthly behind the scenes videos, polls, and surveys we try to do, and after party chat every Sunday after our main show. And we'll be there on our Discord server in about 10 minutes after the show. Uh, to continue the, the conversation there. Uh, more upcoming shows. Uh, Paul will be back uh, with more 10 Dead Rats uh, tomorrow, Monday at 8 p.m. Uh, looking for schedule more wargaming on Saturday if my uh, my in-house partner here wasn't uh, wasn't so busy. You know, Paul, I don't know if you know, but scheduling is hard. <laughs> scheduling games is, is hard, indeed. even with just two it people. Is. It is. Look, look, how, look how much so, we warp the rules of the game just to just to work around the scheduling problem. <laughs> Holy cow. So we'll continue to work on that. But don't forget, one thing you can depend on is that we are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So we hope you'll join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.